Lights, camera, action today. We have Jeremy Dawson, producer, visual effects supervisor, visual effects artist and supervisor, and restaurateur I have known for now. Jeremy, I think it's been 20 years or more. I think it's more. More than 20, Charlie. Almost, I think it's 30. I think it's 30 years. I think we go back uh, to when you were attending uh, Harvard with, uh, with the old crew. Yeah, and I think actually I remember, the first time I really remember talking to you is we came up to the old building on 40, or where was that, 40? 44th Street. 44th Street, was it? But wait, west between like 9th and 10th or 8th and 9th? 8th and 9th Avenue, that was the old Technicolor. Yeah, up there in the old Technicolor in a little room, you know, it smelled like chemicals. The best. Um, and I remember talking to you there, and, and yeah. um, that was probably around when we were doing, maybe it was even tests for pie or something. Might have been tests for pie, because I was, because they ended up using Gufani for pie, Darren did, and, uh, uh, and, and we were trying to help in the, in the after process, because at the time we had, for a period, abandoned black and white processing. Anyway, let's flash forward. Um, what are you, I mean, what are you up to right now? You finished French Dispatch for Wes Anderson, correct? Yeah, that's, that's in the can, and it's sort of, we finished it right around the end of the year, and we were sort of gearing up towards this glorious red carpeted can. Um, which was going to be, you know, from the producing point of view, there's always the fun of, of having a, a premiere, but also, you know, from the logistic point of view, I was thinking, okay, great. We're going to have all the actors there. We can interview them. We can film them. We can get this person to do this little social media, little clip that we were going to have them do. And so, because you have a captive audience for a few days. And then of course, like that went up in smoke with the pandemic and, um, and our release date pushed from, you know, early summer to October now, October 16th. And so we're now in the process of trying to gather what we need for all the marketing and release materials um, in this, in this, in, in new methods. In and new methods. Uh, yeah, no, no, we, I've had a lot of discussions about these new methods with different artists. I'm going to ask you to do one thing. It's not a big deal. I didn't ask you to do it before, but if you can, I will. You have a lot of backlight. Is there any way that we can get the light on your face by turning with the computer? I will close the curtain. Hold on. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. This is legitimate. This is a legitimate part of the podcast when we uh, uh, we begin and uh, trying to get things set up. So uh, anyway, sorry for that, but uh, we're taking a station break as Mr. Dawson. Uh, is that a little with the backlight? I can turn it a bit. The problem is I've got construction going on, so it's a bit messy here. Yeah, that gives me more light on your face. I want to see that put him. There we go. Okay. All right. <laughs> here we go. The GP at work. Um, so, yeah, so there you go. So this is – here we are, current moment. Um, and, and your life – in in our in in and your and your 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 really your creative journey uh, uh, began on some level with with the creation or the early creation right of of what was Darren's company's Protozoa's visual effects company Amoeba Proteus. Were you you're one of the founding fathers? Are you not? Yeah. So basically, what happened is you know first of all we all you know Darren and and I. And Ari Handel, Ari Handel and Dan Schrechter, um, 
all went to university together at Harvard and we were friends, you know, with, a, you know, a, a cool group of creative people of, who were, we used to all, at, with, you know, Sean Goulet, who was the lead actor in Pi, um, Colson Whitehead, the great novelist, who was a friend there and sort of part of the creative, you know, just people we'd hang out with. And, um, and when, when Darren, when people would be doing movie, you know, in, in Dan Schrecker was doing animation at, at Harvard, we would, you know, someone, you'd be there at late at night, I'd be in the dark room because I was doing a lot of photography at the time and he'd be down the hall, you know, drawing on, drawing with ink on, on little film cells. And Darren was making was, his- Schrecker was doing animation, right? He was doing animation at the Carpenter Center. Yeah, he was doing animation at the Carpenter Center. Darren was doing film. We had, you know, we had all these people there. Nina Davenport, the documentary filmmaker, all these people around. Ellie, and then Ellie, a lot of the people- I kind of, as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So we moved to New York. A lot of the guys ended up, people ended up moving to New York as people do, did in that day, trying to find our fortune. And, you know, Sean Goulet went off and started a magazine called KGB um, that was a kind of ahead of its time kind of magazine that mixed like culture and media and ideas. And it was, you know, all, all the, it was sort of like 10 years ahead of what magazines were going to become. So, they, but they had, they had a pretty good run of it. And so I would help doing design stuff for them because I'd gone to, the, I was at the School of Visual Arts in, in New York doing a degree in photography and related media. Um, this is after Harvard. This is after Harvard, yeah. I went to oh, do okay. a master's. Because oh, you did that and then Darren went to AFI but had a little break in the middle. Yeah, so Darren was at AFI. So what Darren was at, Darren was doing AF, went to AFI and he was writing Pi. He was, he was like working, like working on his screenplays. He was always like working on writing screenplays and doing stuff, but he never seemed to have a, a job, job, you know, he was like, he was just creating this stuff. And he actually, for a while, he worked out of an office that Dan Schrecker had. And we were all just doing our hustle, you know, trying to make it by doing a job for 500 bucks here and whatever. And, but everybody who had a creative project, so whether it was Sean's magazine or Schrecker's multimedia project or whatever, we were just kind of calling on each other to help. I mean, I, I had a briefly had a record company where we made a music video a kind of it was it was a music with Prince Paul from from uh, from De La Soul and he he made um, he made this song called the Booty Clap and we made a music video which Darren you know came along with the camera and helped shoot the film so like we were all kind of like in that mindset of like early twenties anything possible let's just create together so meanwhile flash forward where Darren's gone to AFI he's got this film he's gonna make and he came to me to try and generate for Pi. He said, well, there's all these moments where this guy's using a computer screen and we need somebody to make all the graphics. And I'd been experimenting with a lot of interactive media. So I, um, I said, well, I can make those, you know, I can design those screens and wherever he's typing, you know, wherever Sean Goulet's character, Sean obviously is the lead actor, played the lead actor in Pi. Um, I could create those screens and all the screens of data flowing and whatever. So I'd animated and created some of those. And I think Dan Trecker helped me a little bit on that stuff. Um, and I, when we were shooting those scenes, I mean, we had all these people, you know, we had a, it was shot out in what's now, I think Bushwick um, in the, in probably the, the, probably the hottest area of Bushwick is where we were in a ware lighting warehouse that one of the producers father had a lighting company. So it was a little soundstage in the corner there. And um, Nina Davenport from Harvard was filming a second camera and Maddie Lubatique, the first time I met him, he was out there shooting. And 
and we were shooting. I remember looking at the first test in black and white and this kind of really extreme black and white look, like a really high contrast crazy because it was all shot on reversal film, right? It was, it was all black and white, 16 millimeter reversal before the creation of Super 16. Yes, exactly. That's fantastic. And so that it, was, was, it was zero latitude. Yeah. Yeah. And so it would bloom and it would look crazy. And, and you know, there was all these, the stuff outside on the street that was mostly stolen, but the stuff even in the studio or where his headaches are going, I mean, it was just like, you know, was really raw. And, um, but it felt like a real film set. I mean, I was lying under the table with my computer, you know, pushing little key entries when he would, when Sean would be typing on his computer to make different animations happen and the computer crashes. And anyway, got through the shoot and it was, it was great. And then I was at the time teaching at the school of visual arts and uh, teaching a photography and kind of digital Photoshop class. I was sort of early into, into the early days of Photoshop. So I'd been doing Photoshop since probably 91. And I think it had probably only been in existence like a year before that. And, um, and I started to take a class because you could take a course for free if you're teaching there. So I took an animation course. I needed a project. So I said, Darren, can I do the, the title sequence, you know, as my animation project for, for the film that you're making. Meanwhile, remember, this is a film that all of us worked on for no money, right? It was, the idea was everybody got, you tracked the days you worked and the number of days you worked were logged and they figured if anyone ever got paid, eventually it, you'd be paid back by the number of days you worked on it. Didn't matter if you were the editor or a DP or a runner, you know? Excellent, so, excellent gamble. Excellent gamble. I mean, I, I can't say it was ever a huge payday, but, um, but the cool thing was I, I said, Darren, can I do a title sequence? He said, yeah, if it, if it works, you know, we'll use it. And if not, we'll put it at the end of the movie. So I designed this title sequence, which was, you know, using the flowing numbers. And this is, remember, this is before the matrix, right? This was like, Pi came out before the matrix thing, which was oh, like, yeah, no, no, so there was definitely a little bit of feeling of like, oh, I wonder if they saw what we did, you know, Pi came uh, out in 1998. Is that true? That yeah. Correct. Yeah. I came in 98. What year did The Matrix come out? I don't know. Probably 2000. Now there we are. Um, so I did, I had this idea I'm going to do the sequence, which is just the endless flowing of the numbers of pi, like starting with 314 and the fact that it's an infinite number. And that would be the basis for the title sequence. This number just flowing. And then all these graphics coming on top of it and made that thing, animated it, and actually shot it on 16 on an Oxbury. Old school printed it out. I rented a laser printer for like a week, printed it out, punched all the holes, registered it, and did it. Fantastic. Um, and then after that, you know, Dan and Dar Darren, Darren came to Dan and I, and he's like, Hey, I'm doing another, I have another idea for a film, but I want to have some crazy visuals. So can you help me maybe do these visual effects? You know, Photoshop, you can kind of, I'm sure you guys can figure it out. So we went into Requiem for a Dream and we started this company called Amoeba Proteus and we decided we would just do visual effects and we did a lot of them ourselves and some we worked with a great, uh, with a company that had a, a flame at the time or um, Inferno it was, which was like the sort of one of the highest in flame. No, 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 I mean, you're, you're talking to a guy that was in the world, so yes. Yeah, but a million, I'm million, I'm talking to the audience who may not have heard of Inferno. Oh, which you is may like, not have heard of it. I mean, these were the platforms that were the hardware platforms for people watching, right, that were before 
the system became sort of a software-based system, right? So, so discrete logic created things like Inferno, Flame, Smoke, all of these different platforms, but they were part of these massive computer hardware systems. And then later, uh, the generations ahead would create uh, products that were uh, almost available on a, on, a, on a desktop. Yeah, but at the time, it cost like probably half a million dollars for a full Inferno system with all the storage. Well, it was, if not more. Yeah. No more. So we had these guys who had one, and we would go sit there in their place and, um, and, and, and work on it. And, and we did all the effects, you know, with the eye, all those, you know, the eye going, and then the, the blood vessels going in the veins and the, the, the weird speed rampy things. And a lot of it, we did, we did some there on the Inferno and Flame, but some we actually did just in After Effects ourselves um, in a little office next to where Darren was editing pie, um, at Requiem, like Requiem. literally in the next little room on 13th Street. In for those nerds out there who want to know, that was, this was this place called Plantain. And Plantain, the guy, uh, Tyler, uh, Tyler, who had Tyler Brody, was one of the producers who sort of, saw Pi at Sundance and got, and got involved and really thought Darren was talented, gave this space and he had this beautiful building on 13th street. And the other person he gave space to at the time was James Murphy to put a music studio down below. So basically we were in there with James Murphy who obviously went off and became LCD sound system and kind of was an amazing producer as well as performer. So he really kind of had this eye for, for letting these the talent and for helping incubate and giving us these spaces. And uh, it was kind of an amazing time. So yeah, we created this company called Amoeba Proteus and we did stuff on Darren's films and we worked on a lot of other little indie films. Oh we yeah. Did, you know. I mean, you worked on Frida across the universe. Uh, uh, yeah. you, worked on, you worked on Mr. Death for Errol Morris. Yeah. That was the opening we shot. We did. We, Cause one of the other things we started doing is, because on Pi, for instance, Dan and I, we also edited the music video. We did help on the poster, you know, on Requiem. Like, we were kind of like the visual, because there was always a design aspect to what we were doing. It wasn't like we were just the guys with the Inferno who would do what you told them. We were more like the guys who helped visualize this idea that someone would come up with and figure out how to execute it, but in a way that fit with the artistic nature of the we were design creative team to, yeah. uh, to the to what uh, 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 Darren has kept throughout his career with Ari Handel and Mark Heyman as the writing team. And, uh, uh, and then, you know. And Trekker has been on, you know, pretty much all of Darren's films doing the visual effects. He's been on all of them, yeah. And, uh, uh, and then you have guys that were not part of, uh, can I call them the Harvard Mafia? Is that all right? No, I can't call them the Harvard Mafia. The Harvard Gang, the Harvard Consortium. Uh, of people that work together, the collaboration of people that knew each other as students. The only one who's not a member of that crew, I believe, is Andy Weissbrew, or was he a classmate of yours? And he wasn't, and Maddie wasn't. Maddie was. Maddie was LA, so Maddie was Maddie met Darren at uh, at AFI. The Maddie's a New Yorker by birth. He's he's from the East Coast originally when he was a child, you know, and then grew up at grew up out west. Of course, yeah, no, he came, he had he had roots in Queens. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Um, no yeah, well. so that, that was like, that was sort of what was going on. But as I said, it was, it definitely came from the idea, which I feel like, I don't know how, I'm not, obviously not in my 20s anymore. And I, I just was speaking to um, a colleague of mine this morning who was one of, who, who was my assistant 
you know, a few years ago on a couple of films and she's a very smart woman. And, um, and I was talking today, she turned 28 today and she said, um, she was asking, we were somehow talking about what it was like when I was, if I remember being that age. And I was like, you know, when I was in our, in our twenties in New York, it was a kind of thing where when I heard of an interesting creative project going on with some people, you wanted to be a part of it. You never thought there was even a financial aspect. There was no sense of even working on pie. We had, I remember the day that pie got into Sundance. I got a call, I think from Eric Watson or somebody saying pie got into Sundance in competition. We were like, what? Like that, I didn't even think there was an end game in our mind of even going to a festival. It was like the time was making this cool thing. And I, I did that with people in music and in art and in magazine things. And, that whole energy of just like being trying to be creative while you're struck, while you're trying to survive in your twenties and, and, and also playing hard too, as you do when you're, when you show up in a big city and it's like, like, wow, what's this place? I'm out of my box. And that was just like, that kind of set the tone for where everybody went in their own directions, but still people still kind of connect. And I think that that thing, if, if people in their twenties are still doing that, which I know they are, you know, you see what you see the, the ability people now have to, create movies or music on their laptops or with a couple of friends in their bedroom, even more so than, than we could then. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of an amazing thing to do. And obviously, you know, some people have more luxurious situations in terms of like how they're going to pay the rent during those things. And, you know, I, I had jobs always and was working and I, but it was definitely the type of thing where it was kind of like the job would show up at the, exact moment that you were totally broke you know i got this gig because i knew photoshop early on i got this gig doing illustrations for for magazines like i i had a roommate my roommate from college came down he was doing a he was doing journalism about hip-hop so i had this job where i would photo, be doing a lot of photography of hip-hop groups and i started shooting at the same time period i was like shooting hip hop concerts for the PR agencies for like 200 bucks a pop, you know, and you give them your pictures shooting for things that were in vibe or the source or doing album covers. I started designing album covers for this record label called roar reach out international records, which was a cassette only label originally that started going to CDs and they, they were famous for putting out, for instance, the bad brains band in DC album. And it, they were this, this guy, Neil Cooper who had loved music and he was, he was down in Soho and he'd had this record label for ages. And he, he was the ex-husband of Paula Cooper, Paula Cooper gallery. So it was, he was part of the downtown kind of art scene in the, in the eighties. Um, so you, you end up just sort of, we, we were hustling to get by and obviously by going to Harvard and being, you know, and being, having some of these connections, we probably had more of an advantage to survive than some, but I do think that whole idea of just going for creative stuff while you're trying to survive and just, doing something because it sounds interesting and cool to be a part of rather than thinking about where it's going to end up ultimately worked out well. And I'm sure some people it works out better and less better. And there's a, there's an element of luck to it, but it was definitely something that inspired and still kind of drives my thought processes now. Like even now as a producer of working on films or people come to me with a project, I, I definitely think there isn't a film that I've worked on that I don't, think is like a worthy film or that I'm not proud of, you know, it doesn't mean that they were always a commercial success, but they're at least like somebody going for something, whether they fail or succeed is to me kind of way more interesting than something where somebody is just, you know, 
not, they don't have actually some kind of real mental goal in mind of something they're trying to achieve. To me, that that's always been exciting. And I've always liked being a collaborator. I mean, part of projects. And I think maybe I ended up a producer because I like the idea of helping give birth to these things, even if they were somebody else's idea or somebody else's baby. Right on, right on. Uh, a, a perfect transition for me right at this moment, quite frankly, because for me, you had the opportunity as a collaborator to incubate with and, and, to, and to contribute with all of your VFX and design work. And then Wes Anderson, your relationship with Wes turns from, I think, starting doing VFX for, for uh, Life Aquatic, but on Bergerling, you were a co-producer. Yeah, I mean, basically... You were a producer, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Wes isn't really the kind of person that likes to follow the rules. So, he, you know, he has his own rules of what's going to work and not work. So I think the whole transition of producing was him um, saying to me, you could do that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I, which I probably had more doubt than him because he doesn't operate that way. Um, but I, I think that... Part of, I think part of my way of trying to do something is if I have something I'm trying to get done, figure something out, or I've told someone I'm going to do something, or I feel a responsibility, I will work really hard to make it happen. And on Life Aquatic, I was doing what I'd done on a bunch of these other movies, whether it's Frida or whatever. There were things in the script that needed to be done in a, in a way that there were these creative moments, in these case, these fantastical creatures or things like that that appeared in Life Aquatic. And, you know, Wes, like Julie Taymor and like Darren, and, you know, he didn't want to have stuff look like, you know, what sort of CG slick effects. He wanted something that had texture and had life and, and was more interesting. So he had the idea of using stop motion animation, which I had never done anything with before, you know. Um, but he wanted somebody to help figure out how all this stuff was going to work in the film. So I went over to Italy and it was a big operation, that film. And it was a little bit, you know, they were out at sea, so it was hard to communicate. And remember, this is like the pre email on your phone days. So I was over in Italy trying to figure things out and, you know, working, I, Mark Friedberg, the production, great production designer who was doing that film, who, who also now works with Darren. So like, you know, the New York world. Um, this, is Mark, life, this is life aquatic now. Yeah, Mark Friedberg, I remember, put me, he said, hey, you know, because I was over there and not knowing what's going on. He's like, well, why don't you put your set up a desk in, in the art department? We've got space. So I was in the art department and just trying to figure things out and talking with Mark. And just, but a lot of things I had to do on my own, um, you know, like I had to kind of go and figure out, like, how are we doing this part of the thing? And there was nobody around to ask. And those guys were out on a boat at sea and didn't come back till 8 o'clock at night. And I was, like, driving an hour and a half down to, down to like, Sabaudia, which is like, you know, on the coast of Italy to like meet them at rap at the edit room to like show Wes some drawings and get his notes and then drive back. I mean, it was just like, it was a really crazy operation. And I think to get the things done that I needed to get done, I had to do a lot of just like producing my own little units. At one point I was shooting giant miniatures with motion control rigs on one stage. And I had divers underwater in another stage in a tank that I was shooting that I created a underwater drop by just putting like, like going to Chinachita backdrop shop and putting things. So I was doing a lot of figuring out on my own and then I would record things on a clamshell and run over to where Wes was shooting on another stage. I didn't really know him. I'd wait and the AD would shout at me and 
And then I would go in and show him the thing. So I think afterwards he sort of thought, okay, well, this guy, Jeremy has been doing all this stuff like without us. How's he even doing that? Well, while we're making this movie on a boat and he's like getting all these things. So I think he sort of saw in me some ability to like get things done, which is a one side of producing, I guess. Um, I just saw it as like something I had to do in order to do the other part of my job. And then I kind of transitioned into producing from there, but I hadn't completely given up. I mean, even on Black Swan, I still did worked on designing the title sequence for Darren, just literally for old time's sake, you know? Um, and I think that even now when I, when I work with Wes, for instance, I might do some helping of presetting shots on sort of second side unit thing, second unit, or I will sometimes take an image that's going back and forth into Photoshop and mock it up. Say, you mean like this, or, you know, sometimes I, I literally dig into the visuals a little bit in the course of my job to help bridge a gap between one department and another, or to help communicate something to Wes or, um, and, and same thing in the marketing. And, you know, I, I, I think that the experience of the actual physical production experience and the knowing how to design things and having that knowledge technically and creatively is, is a helpful additive skill. Of course it is. Yeah. And, 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 you know, having completed now two stop motion films and fantastic uh, Mr. Fox and, and then also uh, uh, Isle of Dogs. I mean, you, you, you were working within your own, uh, uh, universe with teams of people that were uh, specialized at that, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Those films were huge, and obviously, I started um, Mr. Fox not knowing that much about stop motion, other than what had been done on on Life Aquatic. And we had this other producer, Allison Abate, who had a lot of experience with stop motion. And then, by the time we got to Isle of Dogs, I obviously I'd been through a whole two and a half year cycle of stop motion. I knew everything and knew a lot of the players and and um, it's a different skill set. Like running a stop motion film, it's a little bit more like running a company. Like it's like you're managing a production facility <laughs> more than it is like making a movie. Because in a movie, you just have so many instant decisions that are flowing. And in in stop motion, you have things like I've are these puppets going to be like it's January. We need those eighty three puppets done by June. Are they going to be done? And you can't tell. <laughs> Because right now one of them is a lump of clay and the other one. So it's like it, there's a real process of like tracking and analyzing where you are and projecting and thinking through that. And we obviously had some great people on these films who are just very specialists in those, in those arenas, you know, Simon Quinn, um, who's a great animation line producer and his whole career at built in animation and, and, um, and Ang Angela Poshet who did this scheduling of that movie, which is like of, of Isle of Dogs, which is just like, an insane matrix of scheduling. Like there's a person who has an entire room full of just like charts of like, where's this puppet going to be on this day? And where's this animator going to be? And you're shooting 40 on 40 stages at once. Um, maybe about 20 that are out live and 10 that are getting dressed and 10 that are getting struck. And you're just like trying to make it through, you know, a few seconds a day <laughs> until you have a movie. Um, so those things are grueling. For those people who are, are of, of always, there will be, people who are technical nerds about how this stuff was shot. These were shot on, on still DSLR cameras in small stages uh, and, and shot uh, uh, in, in, in individual stills. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, one of them was shot on Canon and the other on Nikon. Um, just because we're sort of always keeping up with what's the best camera for the day. And, and the camera that, you, that is best is not necessarily the one that's best for a photographer. It's like 
This one is, you know, if one of them has, because these cameras are on for, and shooting the same set for days on end, it literally might be the choice might come down to which one has less heat fluctuation in the sensor over the course of 12 hours, you know, and that's just something that probably isn't fully being factored into like what the manufacturer thinks is needed for their camera. So some of it's just like residual. It could be like the, where they place the power supply vis-a-vis -vis the chip or whatever. So we're, we're always testing and using, you know, lenses, but, but then of course the motion control rigs and things that we use for those are very similar to, you know, motion control rigs you'd use for live action. Obviously they're moving one frame at a time, but some of them can also be used for live action. I mean, we had a gazelle or one of those, you know, or giraffe, one of those little crane rigs on this last movie. Um, and then we had a guy build custom rigs for us. It's, it's super nerdy. I mean, it's kind of amazing that to have, a, be, to be running a movie where you've got a machine shop. Like a, we have, like we had a guy who was literally just building practical lights of miniature practical lights and wiring. We this had- This is for Isle of Dogs. Yeah, for Isle of Dogs. We had a, an entire team of people just working on rapid prototyping with 3D printers of different types. We had casting and molding and paint shops and uh, laser cutters. And so literally like, I was wishing I wasn't so busy making a movie because I kept thinking of all the things I would want to make, you know, like furniture and like cool, you know, coat, hang coat racks and like whatever you could make with all these super talented people. And they're all, they're all made in, in scale, miniature size and middle small sets. So this, yeah. I remember seeing you in, in, in London between films and you telling me, well, I'll, I'll be on this for, was it two and two years to, to do each yeah. one? So explain yeah. to me on a timeline like that, I mean, I think people are fascinated by this. A feature film, narrative, uh, low budget, 30 days, middle to high budget, uh, uh, 45 to 55 days. Uh, uh, and then sometimes even greater. But for a, a stop motion job, you have uh, stages of production. Some of it is obviously set building and construction and building the actual clay characters. And then there's the physical shooting. Uh, give me a sense for, for, as an educational thing, what are the stages of time uh, uh, that, are, uh, that are completely obviously uncommon to physical production for stop motion animation for both Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs. I mean, I would say the sort of basic way that it tends to have worked, and then obviously it extends out, is kind of a year of prep and design, you know, design, prep, building puppets, organize, then, then a year of animating. Um, you know, obviously there's, a, there's leakage on both sides. Post is sort of being done simultaneously with the shooting because you can be going as you go, right? because there's no, there's no real editing per se. So you obviously have to do a finished DI and you have to do a sound mix and scoring, but that's relatively compressed post schedule. You know, you can, you can post, you can start scoring when you still have, when you have only, if you have eight, 79, if you have 82 out of an 87 minute film shot and the rest is animatic storyboards, you can still score it. You don't have to have the thing finished. So um, it's that kind of stuff overlaps. The shooting, I mean, your average animator is doing, you know, I mean, depends how quickly and how rough your animation is. Is It could be anywhere from five to 15 seconds a week. You know, let's say we're average, we made it based our schedule for this on a 10 second a week per animator, two seconds a day. Some days an animator does a 10 second shot in a day. You know, sometimes they are stuck. 
sometimes a puppet breaks, but um, that's sort of the timeline. And, you know, everything has to be ready for when it's ready. So if you've got all these sets being built and you have something like Isle of Dogs, which has a couple of hundred sets, you're having to build them and schedule it and line up everything so that the pup, the assets all arrive at the same time. And also what ends up happening is of course, suddenly you've got no space left because you're making so much crap. Um, So it's really an endurance thing. And and at a certain point you definitely think it's not possible that we'll ever finish this movie. And then you do. That's awesome. Uh, The, the teams not to do like, you know, credit advertising, but, the teams for both films were not the same or were they, or were there common players? Did you hire a team that was, you were in the UK, did you hire a team outside on the continent in Poland or somewhere else? Or were you working all with UK artists? I mean, the team, there were a lot of people who worked on both the films just because they're the best people in the, you know, some of the best people in the world. Um, We had also had some new people who had been, you know, who we didn't know about when we did the first one, but, but you know, there, some people like Simon, you know, has done almost any one of these stop motion movies. He's been, he's done them. So, and then you've got the guys out in Portland now with Leica. So there is, there's, there's a bit more of an industry around our animators. I think were from 15 different countries, you know, like we had animators from the UK, from New Zealand, from the U S from Bulgaria, from, uh, Belgium. I mean, they're, they're from France, from, Spain. I mean, it's really one of these things where you there, it's such a specialized thing that you'll just take the good people in the world. Um, we did, we did almost everything in house and we built the studio from the, the ground up, meaning there was a studio that we, a regular film studio that we used for both films, but we, we installed and built up the workshops, built up a puppet workshop, built up the, you know, bought all the tools, like literally like, you know, we, we, we created the facility. We bought all the computers. All, all this is all in London at a stage like a Pinewood or an L Street yeah. or whatever. Where, Three where, Mills is called, yeah. Three Mills, okay. Yeah. And But we even had to put up a pop-up building to be a workshop because we didn't. there wasn't enough space. Um, and then the puppet workshop, we, we found the puppet guy, Andy Gent, who was an amazing puppet maker, and he'd been sort of the head of the puppet maintenance department on Mr. Fox. He ended up building all the puppets instead of using one of the big outside puppet companies. Um, although we did outsource a certain set of puppets to a small vendor in Poland, um, specifically for the technical, for this, just it was, was really enamored with this, um, Peter and the Wolf stop motion that came out probably, probably 10 years ago now, or 12 years ago. From a company in Łódź that was near the film school in Poland. Yeah. 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 So some people, those guys, a camera mosh. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So some of those people, the woman who oversaw the, the, the Susie Templeton directed it, but she made it in Poland and the people, the woman who had been in charge of making the puppets, Wes really liked the wolf. So we had these, those mangy kind of what we, the mangy dogs in Isle of Dogs were the ones who were living in the kind of treatment facility with all the little experiments on them. So those ones we were, we had made by this Polish company. Um, and it was to get this kind of great feeling to them. Um, but otherwise everything was made by us. And like I said, a lot of the same people came back and a lot of new great discoveries too. And just an amazing crew of the most talented. It's very inspiring and amazing that those things get done. And so as a producer, like one of the things, because it takes so long to do it and because you're not seeing every moment get shot, because normally during a film, you're sort of around and you've got to remember every day, but so much is going on at once and you're dealing with so many things that 
there's a magic to it. So I, I actually weirdly can look at like Mr. Fox, I can watch over and over again much more easily than I can watch other films that I worked on. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, what an achievement, right? It's what it is. Right. Yeah. It's a miracle. <laughs> it really is a miracle. And then you got to do these films that are amazing uh, 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 signature uh, films from, from West, like the Darjeeling Limited, Moonrise Kingdom, uh, uh, and, and of course the Grand, Hol uh, Grand Hotel Budapest, which you were nominated for, it was nominated for an Academy Award. I mean, these are, these are big narrative features, and now a film that's yet to come up, The French Dispatch. There are a common crew for those as well. I believe Bobby Oman shoots a lot of them, is that right? And you have people, he's, he, West creates an ensemble, right? Yeah, Bob shot all of them that weren't stop motion. Yeah, um, wonderful. I love that. And, um, and he's great. And of course, and a lot of the same people came back or, you know, they, 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 they move along through their careers. I mean, Melina Cannonier, this and one again. Andy is an editor, right? Andy Weisblum. Yeah, so Andy's first, so Andy actually, I feel like Andy, you know, was, was my visual effects editor on The Fountain when I was doing the, the visual effects for The Fountain for Darren. Right, because because the editor, the main editor, was Jay Rabinowitz. That that Andy was sort of a second to. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, Andy. You know, Andy was sort of. He wasn't even in the editor. Matt Mayer was the second. Was the first assistant, and um, and Andy. We needed a visual effects editor, and his name came up because he knew stuff about visual effects. So he was the visual effects editor. So I worked very closely with Andy for like a year on the Fountain, and then I think then he went off and did Zoe Cassavetti's film, which was a super tiny film, but. Wes was starting Darjeeling and he said to me, do you know anybody, I, you know, an editor who, you know, you know, anybody who's like smart and up and coming because I want to maybe work with someone who, you know, uh, you know, with just a new energy and somebody who maybe is like, maybe they aren't like already a name yet. And I said, well, this guy, Andy, I, I, I gave him a couple of names, two names, I think one of whom was Andy who I, I said, well, I just worked with this guy, Andy, and he's really smart on the fountain. And he's like, I know he's doing the Zoe Casavetti's thing right now, but he's, and I, he, Wes knew Zoe, he called Zoe. And so he, then he ended up hiring Andy. And then Darren hired Andy to start working with him after that. I know there were, there were, I, I witnessed these battles actually, because of course I was in the middle of the two of them handling uh, uh, dailies and finishing, or at least part of both for either, either director. And I knew that the, the, there was a tug of war over Andy to go from one film to the other. Is that correct? I mean, I don't know if it's a tug of war. It seems to have worked its way out, but I do it's think that really I mean, really. yeah. Andy didn't do Grand Budapest because he was busy on, um, I guess, was it Noah? At the time? I, I've lost track of what happened when, Probably, but, yeah. um, but I, but I think that um, I was just going to try and say that I feel like Andy owes me a very nice, like whatever retirement gift at some point. <laughs> That's true, man. You, 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 you know, we, we all play a part, uh, but not as significant as the one you played. I'm not going to take any credit for it because Andy's going to watch this podcast and he's going to call me. He already called me this morning. I told him I was doing it. So, That's but anyway. okay. That's okay. Hey man, you know, I say tip a hat. I love, I, I love you guys. Uh, I, I, I've, I've been, uh, as you know, uh, and not just a compadre with Darren back to Harvard, but if if you if you don't remember the story, uh, it was a pretty spectacular story uh, as it took place. 
Darren was very vocal when you guys were at the Carpenters Center together, and I left Duart to go to Technicolor in 1990 after having been with Duart for part of a year in 1989 into 1990. And Darren basically single-handedly caused insurrection at the Carpenters Center and said, by the way, Charlie, Charlie left Duart. We're going to follow him to his drop-off at Technicolor. And that's when our relationship began. And it went all the way through to Noah, my last uh, film uh, working at, at, at the label. So yeah. he, he's, uh, you know, the whole team, are, are, it's, uh, it's a family. Yeah, and, and Wes has a similar one. I mean, he obviously has, has Melina Cannonero, who did the costumes again on French Dispatch, and um, Adam Stockhausen, who's been, who was the art director of Darjeeling, but has designed the last few and is also now designing for Spielberg. And, you know, so we've, he, you know, these guys are, you know, both of, both Darren and Wes are the kind of filmmakers who demand excellence and are not going to compromise and will push. And they need really good people who are both creatively really good and really smart to, to get their films done or they wouldn't get done. I think, you know, absolutely. And, and, and through Wes, you created a relationship with a company that I believe is still around called Indian paintbrush that brought you in to do me and Earl and the dying girl, which was not a left turn, but continuity with a, not with Wes, but with the company that produced Wes because Indian paintbrush also produced or, or financed a lot of Wes's films. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, the Indian paintbrush relationship was, with Wes started at the time of um, Darjeeling. And, and, that's and, when, and that's when you first met them as a, uh, on, as a teammate on that, right? Yeah, Dar they did Darjeeling and they came in on Darjeeling and on Mr. Fox as sort of co-financiers. And I think they didn't use the name Indian Paintbrush. I think they had a different name at the time, it began with a C, I forget what it was called. Okay. Um, but, they, but anyway, it was Stephen Rail's company and he, a big fan of Wes's and wanted to get into into films and and then I ended up doing me and Earl with them because they had this project they were excited about and um and they they just needed a, a, another producer on it to like help kind of shepherd it through so I did that and it was sort of good timing of when when it worked out and the film turned I, I mean I'm very proud of that film it's like it was also really fun to do something like that was so 24 days or whatever it was, you know, like, you know, with, with an art department of three people. Um, and it, and it was, it was, it was a great experience to do that. And I love that the director of that's very talented, Alfonso Gomez Rahon. Yeah. I, 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 I'm a huge fan and, and I, and, and, and I tell people about it quite frankly, because what I love about it is it's a film made by a cinema lover. I yeah. mean, those reenactments by the two boys, of Agira, the Wrath of God, or, or uh, I mean, you know, these these recreation shorts that were done by these kids of these classic films, and they created their own little movies as part of the narrative, along with this very uh, compelling story about the the uh, Connie Britton, the the mom who basically ignites these kids' demand to to spend time with this girl who's dying of cancer so it's just what an incredible story yeah it was a good one and and then you know since then i you know who knows what the future will bring i mean obviously i've still you know i've 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 got some projects i've been working on with other you know young film I, i've always 
still been excited by the idea of just trying to help things along. So there's been filmmakers who've come to me or people or short films. I've worked on people who haven't made a, made a, made a feature and I've helped them on those things. Once again, not with any strategic thing, but just more like, Oh, this person seems talented and let's try and help with this thing. I've, I've been doing a, I got a film with, um, with this photographer, Alex Prager, who's done a bunch of shorts and she's a sort of doing really well-known art photographer and does also well as well, a lot of commercials and things. And she, we've got a film at Searchlight that we've been developing together and the film, the, the script is still going through the phases there and a few other things like that. that are sort of in the, in the pipeline. And then, you know, well, you just, yeah. And you just have to hope at some point that you know, all the people you want to work with, that they, all the things kind of the chips fall into place, you know? Of course. Of course. That's the game. Oh yeah, it is. And, and during all of this craziness and all of these years of, of going uh, 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 through a, a career of, of doing visual effects and titles and producing, you also managed to find the time to get into a business that I dabbled in at one point and got out of, the restaurant business. I think you were smart to get out. I got, um, out, I got out in 2017, and boy, I got to tell you right now, where we were on Hudson Street between Morton and Barrow at my old Alexandra restaurant. Yeah. Not, not, not where you want to be during the pandemic. I'm not saying there's anywhere that you want to be during the pandemic, but that's definitely not where you want to be during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, the restaurant thing was, you know, it, that was one of these things. I have a, we have a bar and a, and a, and a one that has a bar with more food and my brother, they're, they're both with my brother and another partner, but, the first one just came into, it was one of these things, once again, something that sounded cool. It wasn't like we were sitting there talking about doing it. It was about this building came up and we knew it was for sale. And my sister-in-law, future sister-in-law at the time, she's like, there's this place and it used to be a Sicilian social club and they're closing down and it's kind of cool. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That sounds like it'd be such a cool bar. And they looked at me like, that's exactly what we were thinking. Do you want to go see it? We've got the key. I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, the old guy there just said, if you want to look at it here, take the key. Like it was like that really old Brooklyn Carol Gardens vibe, you know? Oh, yeah. So that was like that's, that's 16 an, years ago or something. It's an old and, Italian neighborhood. Yeah. So we went over there, there and we ended up taking that place and became the Brooklyn Social. And then we opened another place, Henry Public, a few years later. And obviously Brooklyn Social, we were in the process of building it out. And then it's when I went to do Life Aquatic. So I bought a lot of decoration and things in Rome at the flea markets in Rome while I was doing Life Aquatic. But... um by the time the next one's now, you know, my career has gotten busier and I spent so much of my time over in Europe. My brother and his wife and Tracy, our other partner, do most of the running of them. And I, I don't do that much anymore, you know, but it's still, it was a great experience. And right now it's tough, but hopefully they're at least they're both kind of neighborhood beloved spots. I'm hoping that they're the kind of spot that people will still want to support, you know, in, whether they're wearing PPE or not, we will see. Well, I mean, I think you just said a second or so ago that you that the opportunity came with uh, actually buying the building and doing the restaurant. Is that how it, how it came down? Uh, it's more it's a longer, more complicated story than that. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But yeah. I, but I will say that the keys to the castle, uh, uh, because I know that from during my brief period with my partner in that business, I certainly learned that restaurants like Raoul's that own their building or like the year in that have basically a hundred year lease kind of deal. One of those. Right. Yeah. No, that's a bit more stable. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to come back. They'll be boarded up so that the glass doesn't get broken, but, uh, but they, they will return. Of course here, 
in my neighborhood in Park Slope, uh, Skylark and Monroe and all the bars on Fifth Avenue, I mean, they're all serving drinks out of their window from a, on, into plastic cups like we're living in New Orleans. Uh, Everyone's doing that, but, you know, they, you know obviously that's not going to work very well in New York in the winter. No. Uh, and second of all, at some point they're going to crack down on people Right now, I mean, New York's been one of those places after living in England and these places like that the idea of seeing somebody walking down the street with a beer is like shocking to Americans when it becomes less shocking once you spend some time over in, in, in Europe. Um, but I, I think the prudishness will come back at some point. Yeah, 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 of course, of course. So apropos of, of the impact of the pandemic on, on the uh, obvious uh, uh, economics of the hospitality business. Uh, I, I'm interested to hear now that you have a film that's completed uh, in, in Wes's new film. It uh, has an October release plan, correct? Yeah. Okay. I just, I, I had a podcast recently with Boaz Yakin, who directed a film called Aviva, his second in a sequence of independent films that he produced and directed himself with a group, a group of people, low budget films. This last one went out in a release through a new platform that I had never heard of before. Um, basically, the distributors were selling tickets through movie chains, like a, even a Regal or an AMC. Yeah. But the movie tickets they were selling were for VOD streaming. So people were- What was the, what was the platform? I, I, I want to I, I say I know, and I feel kind of goofy not knowing what it was. But it was a ticketing platform like a Fandango or a movie yeah. phone type thing. And when you buy the ticket, you get the right for, for streaming the film at home. But you're buying the equivalent of a movie ticket. And the movie ticket becomes part of theatrical box office. And I might add, the actual subscription availability. That would mean, obviously, Amazon, Netflix, Disney+, and the list goes on, HBO Max the ancillary opening of the ability to either rent on an iTunes or an Amazon or another platform was given a, a theatrical window, right? Because the, the, here, here lies the problem that took place with uh, uh, The Irishman when it got released. Right. Uh, Netflix refused to provide a 30, a 60, or a 90-day window, and negotiations fell apart. The commercial theaters kicked them out, and then and then they had a theatrical release at uh, uh, independent theaters. That story is already told. This is a new model that enables a window, but there but it's not with the theater. It's it's uh, it's buying buying viewings as a part of the box office strategy, but not theater viewings. I mean, I I, I similarly got. I, there was, I'm wondering if it was the same platform because there was this film that, um, a little film that I know had been at, I think at Tribeca last year, it's one called Crushed. And they, they, I got some emails about an online screening of that as well, that you, you'd buy a ticket at a sort of Eventbrite type site, you know? Right. Um, but I think that obviously this is going to have some effect on the windows. I think, you know, from a person at home, and I think, you know, the, the, the experience we the market is is being shaken up obviously the theaters are are hurting um not having any income and they were hurting anyway but i do think that having um 
a market. To me, as a consumer, if I've got my television or my projector, I've got a projector here at home, and I want to watch a movie on that projector, and I can watch the movie on Hulu because I subscribe to Hulu, or I can watch the movie on HBO, whatever. Or I can watch the movie by, because it's X number of weeks earlier, I can watch the movie by clicking on a button and paying $20 to watch it. The exp I'm basically watching a movie on my screen and sometimes I have to pay for it and sometimes I don't. And I think for people, the, 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 the whole concept of Windows is driven by the fact that the thing was in the theater. And I think, so if you don't go in the theater at all, the, people's concept of the window of like what it means to see it first or early and pay more for that is, is, is disrupted a little bit. So I think people are gonna have to settle into the new reality of what that is. Like there is a culture of being, of wanting to be timely. You know, there's always been that culture of like, if, if everybody's talking about, did you see blah, 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 and you haven't seen it yet, you're a little bit left out. So there is a premium to that. Um, and that's part of streaming culture as well. The water yes. cooler, the water cooler exists for Game of Thrones. The water cooler exists right. for a series like uh, uh, The Affair, and the water cooler also exists for movies uh, that are streamed. Right, it definitely does when it comes up, or like Tiger King or something, right? Tiger but, King, big giddy up. But I think that. So I, yeah, I think it, I, obviously that people are going to be trying out different things. It'll shake out some way. You know, there's reasons that the, the theaters want to protect the windows, obviously, because of the way the money works. And I guess the economics will all sort of start to shift and we'll, we'll see where we end up. I think right now people are going to try anything and everything. And I think if you've got a little independent film, you're more flexible than if you've got a film that either costs a lot of money, so it needs to recoup, because obviously as soon as you go to these VOD things, it might affect international box office or affects the piracy of the film. So you have to be, um, you know, and, and, and also studios might have bigger, bigger studios. They might have deals with airlines, you know, windows for the airlines or windows for HBO exclusives or whatever. And all those things are part of the recruitment, you know, modeling. Um, and so if you if you throw the and, and even the irony is something like how much your film is worth on to an HBO or something depends on how well it did at the box office. You know, a big hit yeah. film has a bigger but so, so suddenly it's all shaken up. So the models will have to have to realign at some point, and I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, I'm hoping people still like to see things in it. You know, to me, the most distressing thing of anything is not people seeing it at home or a theater or anything. It's just the idea that people might be watching a movie while they're doing something else. Because when people, when the, film, the kind of filmmakers I've worked with, I'm realizing that they're so attentive to every pixel and every beep sound effect and every dart of somebody's eyes in the background and every, like, there, so much has gone into that that they're considering that you could put all your attention, freeze frame and stare at this frame as long as you want and you're gonna get, they, everything in there is there because they want it there. and. If someone is Instagramming, texting, cooking, eating a pizza, talking to their friend while it's playing on the, you know, while they're walking down the street, they're they're not going to get the thing that they're not going to get the real experience that this person thought they were trying to create. Like anytime you're color correcting a film, you're in a perfectly calibrated dark room with a 
reading the, the, the screen with a gun. You know that you're mixing, you're not just mixing it on your laptop, you're mixing in a stage. Which is, so what's the point of all that if people aren't going to experience it that way? Like these things are being made to have a great, the, the ability to have a great experience. It doesn't mean someone can enjoy it differently, but I think in the same way that some people are still going to buy a great stereo system because they want to hear music properly. And some people are fine to just use the free earbuds you get on the airplane. I think that, that there's always going to be a version of people wanting to experience a movie as the object it was supposed to be made. You know, it's like, do you want to go see a famous painting at MoMA and stand in front of it? Or do you just want to look at a picture of it online? Well, the home, the home theater, uh, uh, not as a replacement, but an augmented uh, space, has become more sophisticated. Uh, uh, pretty much every new screen being sold right now is uh, a, a 4K uh, uh, capable. And uh, uh, through at least the platform I have at home through Apple, uh, I can get Netflix and Amazon in 4K. If right. I go so far as to build surround sound, um, I can get a, 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 an immersive sound experience. And then now Amazon, as well as Netflix, are, are, are uh, uh, adding on the experience of what the new version of, of Dolby Atmos is, which is a uh, Atmos HT, the Atmos home theater audio experience. So there's an attempt to, to, to take what people are investing in. Of course, this is not the entire population of moviegoers. Let's, let's get real for a second. But it's a growing population of people who are home viewers that are investing into the possibility of receiving these uh, 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 these films in the in the best possible way, albeit that the larger box office audience still relies on a cinema environment to see it in this way. Yeah, and some people aren't gonna. I mean, it's not cheap to have a good home theater, and you need. No, 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 exactly. I mean, who's got an extra room in New York City? And and there's a lot of people who are struggling just to have a a place to live, let alone an extra room for their TV. Exactly um, right. So I, I, I agree with you thoroughly. We, we, uh, that, that's a necessity to give the full experience that the director created, which is where we started. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that it has to be even theatrical. In some sense, I do think, though, that, like, I was one of those people that was distressed. It's like, what, you know, as, I mean, okay, the transition from LPs to CDs and analog to digital People complain about that and some will say you lose something in the sounding, but, but CDs were at least trying to create at the time something that had a high level of fidelity. Then it suddenly transitioned to everybody listening on MP3s, which were a much more compressed, lower quality than the CD. And you're, you start to think like at some point, why wouldn't the, you know, at some point, like it doesn't really make sense to use technology to figure out ways to like, lessen and lessen the quality of what's delivered to us. If we wanted to, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point the, the phone is going to have a, a, a full, you know, cinema mode. There's going to be some way that you can, you know, there'll be some very simple way to get like amazing quality. There'll be some little add on amazing little Atmos grid. You pop your phone into and you'll, Absolutely. and it'll tell you your lights are too light and it'll dark. It'll calibrate your screen to the light. And you'll you'll and you'll push a button to like stop all alerts, and you watch your film. Immer they'll they'll find more immersive ways for people to view. No question. Or about it. VR. 
yeah, VR absolutely, and uh, and they will create uh, technology uh, uh, to be able to, to to do all of this. I mean, for me, um, uh, uh, we're we're in a run now for a, a dry up of content that's even more threatened than uh, we're as threatened as the exhibitors because right now we're 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 awaiting when uh, uh, parts of the world open up for physical production. What, what have you been hearing about that? Yeah, I think, um, well, I just want to say one other quick thing, which is I also think there is an aspect, not just to going to the cinema, but going to the cinema with people. I think people have watched so much stuff in their homes lately. And there is that feeling of going to see a movie and then going out for a drink afterwards or a snack and like talking about it that, that people are going to miss, which is different than the water cooler talking. Absolutely. With the Joneses versus like, you know, you're not going to get into real-time conversation unless you just saw it with a person in the same time. You get that thing like that moment where she looked at him like this and you know, okay. But anyway, to jump into production, I mean, I, you know, I've seen the industry white paper. It's less onerous than, than I imagined. I think that, I, I think that everyone is trying to, I think the film industry compared to a lot of industries seems to be trying to be, and partly that's because, you know, people are, they're used to organizing groups of people and being very, you know, controlling your experience over the course of the day compared to other work sites. But um, I think the film industry is trying to be at least as responsible, if not more responsible than almost any other industry. You know, I mean, they started, construction seems to have started back up and it's like, yeah, maybe they're taking temperatures or not, but it's not like it's changed the way that they're like, literally, like, I don't think they're doing COVID tests like once a week on every single person coming to the construction site and, you know, quarantining anybody from like anybody who is at the supply room can't actually like exit the supply room to bring things onto the site. Like, so I think that the film industry is trying to be responsible and obviously it's, it, it's always a very intense environment. You spend many hours and you could be cramped in a bathroom for like eight hours. So I see why we're doing it. I think that's good but I think it's going to figure out a way. I mean, I'm not, I think there'll be a little blip. Maybe there'll be a little content blip, but then I think it's going to open back up. And there's a lot of things, you know, I hear a lot of things, people champing at the bit to go. And obviously in other countries they are already going, whether it's Iceland and New Zealand and, and Prague seems pretty much ready to go. And England, they're talking about going, although that might be premature. And I think by end of the summer, beginning of fall, there'll be a bunch of things shooting here. And it, it's just really like, yeah, how are we going to deal with films with like a lot of people probably who don't work on movies may not realize how many people are there working on them when you're doing them. You know, like if you've got oh, a big cool. room with a lot of extras, it's not just the extras, but you might have brought in an extra 25 costume people and 50 makeup people just to put the makeup and costume on all these extras. So like, that's just like a lot of people. And the other thing is, you've got a bunch of extras. They're, they're like sitting in a gym all day long, like crammed on top of each other, you know? So it, it's going to be, there's some puzzles to figure out, but I know that we've got smart people in the industry. And, and um, I think there's only so much appetite there's going to be for films that are just the ones, you, you know, people aren't going to watch, want to watch like five years of like my dinner with Andre over and over again. You know, they're going to want some big things and whether those things are cured through visual effects or through geography of where they shoot or, new protocols or the vaccine. We don't know, but, um, but let's just hope we got to, we got to watch some stuff, Charlie. Yeah, baby. Absolutely. 
one thing I never asked you about, and because I didn't know about it when I first met you, is you, you were you were uh, were you born and raised in Vancouver, or you're you're by origin Canadian? I was born in the states, and I moved to Canada when I was two. Oh, when you were two, okay. My dad's Canadian though, so and he was a English professor up there, so he got a job when I was two and moved up there. So I don't really remember living in the states other than post college. I mean, but well, other well, than you went college. to Harvard, yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you you went you but you went through all of your growing up years in Vancouver. Um, what what was the what was the foundation uh, uh, from from childhood and your home life that led you into a, a, a desire to explore initially design and, uh, and, and all the things that you've done that led to your visual effects world uh, and then on into uh, uh, filmmaking? I mean, I don't know. I, 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 was, I was a good student, so I was like interested in science and math. And I think I, I applied to all these other schools for like engineering and robotics. And I, I like, I don't think I knew what I was going to do, but I had always done a lot of photography. Like in high school, I did photography and yearbook and stuff. You're a visual artist. Yeah. Yeah. And then I went to, when I went to Harvard, I did some classes in there and there was a, there was a teacher teaching the photography, this woman, Robin Westner. I don't know if you ever came across her mm -hmm. and she was just an adjunct teaching. And, and she was like, Oh, at one point she's like, oh, so this is what you're going to do? Are you going to do this? And I was like, do what? It hadn't occurred to me that I could just do something creative as a job you know what I mean it had I never really crossed my mind I never really had any pressure from my family of like what to do or what to study like they were pretty relaxed about it like I know there's obviously a lot of people who were real pressure to not go to art school and go to med school or whatever it was I, I wasn't my thing so then I just kind of made that decision but I did always love movies you know my parents like movies and there was a great theater called the Ridge Theater in Vancouver growing up that was um you know, one of those rep theaters, it would show like a double bill every night. And it might be like, it's Truffaut month or it's this. And we saw a lot of films like, you know, with my being 12 years old or whatever. And we my parents would have friends over for dinner and then we'd all go to a movie and we'd all go to the movie together, you know? And so it was like, and this was like an 800 seat art theater, you know, with like wow. cappuccino, cappuccino and like artisanal stuff in the lobby in like the eighties, you know? So Vancouver always had that kind of cinephile thing, like in theaters like the Brattle or whatever, one of those kind of places, but big. Um, and, but I also grew up without a television, which might have something to do with it. How <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so, so uh, uh, you were not given the opportunity to zone out in front of a TV. If you wanted visual entertainment, it was in a movie theater. Yeah, or it was, yeah, it was just making my own, you know, entertainment, whatever that was. But yeah, definitely. I liked to go to the movies when I was in high school. And, you know, you'd go downtown with your friends and go to the Cineplex Odeon. Right on, right on. And your parents themselves, not artists, or, or, or your father was a literature professor? Yeah. At UBC? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, and any siblings in the film business? Any, uh, any, any partners in crime? None of that. My brother did acting for a long time and his wife as well. So he, and he's a very good actor and he did a lot of theater and stuff and, and, um, um, but nobody like in the, in the making or production or writing side, you know, so much. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And, uh, and, and now, uh, 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 the, the next, uh, 
the next highlight accomplishment for you is when French Dispatch will be released, which you said is still on plan for October, uh, and, and not to do uh, to end the the episode with a plug, but uh, certainly we'll we'll want to keep our eye on it uh, 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 after we uh, uh, put this episode up. Uh, is it is it still tracking for October? Yeah, October sixteenth, and um, and it's once again. I mean, Wes is not the kind of guy who sits on his rests on his laurels and like he pushes himself each time. So this one is like, you know, more complex and wilder and than, than the last one. So I, I think um, it's, it's a pretty crazy accomplishment and it's like, a, it's a really interesting movie for our time. Cause it's, it's, it's got a, it's a bit of a celebration of journalism and the art of journalism and the, in terms of like the writer bringing their being a proxy for you to have an experience. Um, so it, it's got these different interwoven, these different stories, um, of, from, from this magazine, a fictional magazine in, in a fictional city in France, that's a little bit of a New Yorker-esque type of magazine. Um, and they're just, each of the stories is great. And the characters who are the writers are great. And the cast, once again, it's, I'm not going to go Amazing. into it. It's and it's like, it was all shot in France, obviously, but not in yeah. Paris or in Paris. Not in Paris, no. In a town called Angoulême. Angoulême, okay. Angoulême. Yeah, I know where it's where they do the comic book festival every year. For real, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting area because it's not far from Bordeaux and Belgerac and all that stuff, right? Angoulême is down there. Exactement. 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 Far from Bordeaux, it's like an hour from Bordeaux. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I remember visiting Angoulême. Right. It's taken me a full year to like lose the extra weight from eating all the butter oh, there you go yeah. that's the 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 uh lo- location living in the place with the greatest food and wine in the world right exactly yeah it took me like it took a pandemic to get it back get me back get my belly back in shape hey, um, man, I'm, I'm i'm all about city bike these days as i think i mentioned to you yesterday and thank you by the way uh, your tip yesterday, the uh, Manhattan Bridge, not to go off course off our podcast, I actually made it into the city in record time, and I saw the spill out off the Brooklyn Bridge. I never would have gotten in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for doing this, Charlie. It was fun. Dude, this is fabulous. Uh, 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 thank you so much, Jeremy. What, this, what a great to time. The, to the seven or seven million people who watch it, thank you for yes, listening. Yes, seven million yeah, people. Uh, hey, listen, you know, the one thing about these episodes is, remember, they're never taken down. Well, that's not so, fair. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's also very good because it means that I have episodes like, you know, with, you know, with Keanu Reeves, obviously, it's a little crazy because, they, you know, they're over 50, 42,000 views. But, but they, they mount over time and people watch them and, and they come okay, back. I'm happy. I, I, for me, this is going into a vault of memory. Great conversation. I'm not going to watch myself. No offense, but you're not going to watch yourself in the episode. Okay. Yeah. Understood. No All problem. Right. Thank you so much, Jeremy. This was great. Right. See you, man. Thank you. Later.